What you really want to do is reveal who people are at the heart of them, at the depth of them, at the core of them, and at the essence of them. Then in living systems, that the people you have on your table decide what the pockets are. They decide where and how they want to be moved. And it's not uh, for self-actualizing, it's for system actualizing. They learn to express their essence, evolve their capacity to do that by working on serving a system through a value-adding process Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and this is the first episode of a partnership with Intrepid Ed. Uh, I have had some articles published on Intrepid Ed, and uh, now they've been kind enough to host our podcast. We're very excited about this partnership and look for more exciting news uh, coming ahead. Our guest today is Carol Sanford, very special guest, uh, someone who prides themselves as built a career and just really enjoys disrupting. Uh, enjoys disrupting thinking using frameworks and we'll go into um, what she sees as frameworks as opposed to models now for four decades carol has worked with great leaders of successful businesses such as google dupont intel png and seventh generation and she's worked on them to develop their people ensure a continuous stream of innovation that continually deliver uh, extraordinary results um, in different strategic directions. She has an education background. She uh, teaches at Babson, where she was named executive in residence and senior fellow in social innovation at the school and has won uh, the award for top conscious business leader uh, by Conscious Company uh, Magazine for Global Impact. Uh, interestingly, in the case of many of the conversations that we've had, Carol's framework, uh, one of them is largely in terms of regeneration, and she will spend quite a bit of time talking to us about what regeneration is. She's the author of several books, including The Regenerative Business, The Responsible Entrepreneur, The Responsible Business, No More Feedback, Cultivating Consciousness at Work, and uh, she has a new book uh, coming out uh, very shortly as well. Uh, we'll leave space for a conversation with uh, Carol. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. If you like the podcast, of course, leave some stars, subscribe. Uh, and here's my conversation with Carol. Well, hi, Carol. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I just wanted to uh, uh, get more of your ideas and your views. You really like to disrupt. You've got your own podcast. Uh, you shake things up uh, and, and you provide people with different ways of, of looking at the world. Uh, and I know that much of what you talk about is this idea of regeneration that goes through everything that we might do through our way of thinking and business. Uh, I'll start off asking you, who are you? What do you do? And how do you try to make a difference? Well, as you said, my name is Carol. Sanford is the uh, surname I use. Uh, I have many, many different hats. I think, though, that the way I really like to describe who I am is I am a person who seeks to disrupt certainty because my real, although you mentioned regeneration, my real drive is paradigms. And regeneration is a paradigm which comes out of living systems. And there are other paradigms which don't. And so I'm a disruptor of certainty in the sense that I want you to have instruments to disrupt ideas you may have learned, become attached to, even identified with, because it's how you make a living. And my work in the world, including how I seek to make a difference, is to bring capacity for self-reflection, for consciousness, for choice about who we are 
you know, the old question, do we have free will? Mostly not because we're so attached to ideas and so stuck in some way. We are not actually choosing when we say I choose something or I decide. Nope, you don't decide. Our mechanicalness does. So all of that together probably gives you an idea about who I am, how I work. I don't like the word do because so much of it's about being and about uh, lifting up what we have will toward. But all of that, I believe, has a chance for people of making a difference. You know, it's funny you say that because uh, it is the question I've been asking uh, since the beginning of the podcast. And the last episode that we had was actually called We're Human Beings, Not Human Doings. So I should rethink uh, the, the, the question that I ask as, as I move along. Well, and that's only two of the three. I mean, there is our function, our being, and our will. And so your last question about how you make a difference is working, I think, on do I make a difference? Am I awake enough that I can exercise will? So I think all three questions have value. I'll, um, I'll pick up on that uh, in a moment. And uh, as we go along, we want to ask uh, as well um, the, the question that we ask everyone. So we have a common definition. Uh, how do you define learning? All right. For me, the question you're really asking, or let's say the one I choose to answer, is what is your epistemology? How do you come to know in the world? What do I believe about how people come to know? Uh, and then therefore can learn and unlearn in the process. And my work is based on a particular epistemology, which I have to fight being attached to because I'm so sure it's right <laughs> that I can end up in a lot of trouble. And that epistemology has to do with learning from lived experience with frameworks that give us a way to be more whole and complete, including about who we are. Now, that's a little more than definition. It's more about how does knowing and coming to know and thinking we know and then unknowing work. If you use the uh, traditional model of uh, import knowledge, test knowledge, and then import more knowledge, you're kind of limited. If you uh, think from an epistemology of people have the uh, can only really know something, they can only really, uh, quote, learn it. If it passes through their experience, their application, their engagement, but that's not enough. They have to have reflection in the doing it or they just added into somehow their toolkit or whatever you quiver, all those words people use. And I add to it that there is no real learning uh, unless you're in a process using a framework, not a model. A model gives us all the answers, but frameworks help us see how we're thinking. And that's foundational to my work. So that's where my epistemology is. And I think it answers your learning question too. Maybe you can unpack this a little bit more, the difference between a model and a framework and how they might be tools that could help us or hinder us uh, as we move forward in the world, make decisions and, and, and experience that world. Well, think about what you buy in a box that is a model of something. So you go to the toy store and you buy a toy train or a toy airplane and it has 
it's a model that you have to put together and there's an instruction sheet that goes with it and all the parts are there and it tells you check and make sure you have all these parts and then do it in the sequence now you can set it on a shelf that's literally how a model works in our mind because what it does is it gives us the parts the pieces the flow what it's supposed to look like and our minds, when we take that on from, let's say, the classroom, that's what's mostly offered to us in traditional classrooms. I'm pretty sure from what you said to me about your listeners, that's not where they're headed. They don't have a model that they're bringing about how you teach, what you teach, how you test, uh, what people do with it, how you grade them. All of those are models, but they're mental, too. They get impressed on our way of seeing the world. Uh, if you use a framework, a framework is something that says, here's some arenas that kind of go together and they have principles attached to them. And if you, I did a lot of work with Pythagorean, um, uh, what did he call that? Well, numerology was one, but it always confuses people because it's nothing like modern numerology. It was more about how much complexity is there in what I'm about to think. And so Pythagoras said you can think at a three-term system where you get beyond the polarities of the world and you have used a framework which has lifted you forever because we're stuck in the model of everything is right, wrong, yes, no. And that's a model. We see the world that way. You're wrong. I'm right. Uh, you get an A, you get a B, and everybody's in a box. A framework instead says, what are the forces at work? And how do you define them in this situation? How do you bring them so you can see that they're dynamic and that they're higher order and lower order and depends on where your mind is? If you've got a framework that can show you the forces at work, the energies at work, now you can form questions. You're not given answers of what you put together, but you're given a capability to think. And I say you can think more whole and more complex. And that's how I teach all my college students, all my executives, all the kids that I work with. Uh, I help them work with being able to learn how uh, how frameworks can enrich their lives. Is this the same as uh, the idea of a reductionist and a systemic? The differences between that of trying to reduce things to parts as opposed to the system? Well, it depends. There can be models that are not quite mechanical, but for the most part, the it is mechanical. I would say it's like the difference between a fragmenting. A reductionism is true, but it's more like the difference between fragmenting and learning all the parts compared to being able to have see a living system at work. So there's a lot of thinking about what system thinking means that I think is built off machine theory. It's called systems dynamics. And when you do that, you have not gotten out of mechanicalness because you have uh, a flow, uh, feedback loops, all those things that come off of uh, their metaphors off a machine. So yes, and I'm meaning a little more than that, the difference between fragmentation, making things generic, and seeing if it's alive and dynamic in a living systems uh, framework. One of the words that you use is attachment. Uh, and when you, you mentioned these words, I, I'm kind of brought back to Buddhism in many ways and, and some of the things that we have. What are your, what are your um, 
inspirations for maybe some of these these ways of thinking. And I know that you also have um, uh, a heritage as well in uh, in indigenous cultures. How how has that formed and framed and and uh, fed your your way of seeing the world? Well, uh, it's a lot more than inspiration. I was immersed with my grandfather, which I'll write about in the regenerative life. Uh, and I've dedicated books to him before, which uh, he was part Mohawk. And he grew up off outside a reservation in Oklahoma. But he he farmed, he raised pigs, and he went to market, and he taught in the uh, uh, agricultural uh, farm, the farm bureaus during the Dust Bowl. So I learned from him from how you touch earth and how you raise animals as a part of your family. I mean, he called them family. They all had names and he told them they were going to go to market and he really appreciated. I mean, all this stuff he'd learned, right, with his tribal influences about being grateful for the flow of life you're in. But I also did spend quite a bit of time in Buddhism. My form was Mahayana, the uh, Northern Tibetan Buddhism. And that's the one that I probably immersed myself in the most, learned my forms of meditation and uh, even medicine. But I also spent uh, time studying, not living in, but studying the, uh, a form of uh, Hinduism by Sri Aurobindo and the mother. I was highly immersed in um, the Socratic teachers, including the spiritual side, which and Pythagoras, which most people they'll they'll quote Socrates, but most people don't actually know how he was working. And I did a lot of my doctoral work on trying to look at how Socrates was working. Why was he working that way? What was he really doing? And so I have all of those sources, and then some that come out of esoteric Christianity and esoteric. Uh, Sufism. The interesting thing, and the reason I use the word attachment often and identification, is all of those spiritual practices and the lineage practices and the indigenous ones all have the idea of attachment in them. In fact, my work is drawn from all of these ancient teachings that have come through time where their common threads overlap. And, and draw a picture. So attachment is one that is warned against it, it, everywhere from, you know, if you're in a Buddhist practice, you had uh, the, the, the wheel, the Dharma wheel, and how you get stuck on that. But if you were in uh, any Middle Eastern tradition, the esoteric side, or even in esoteric interpretations of the Bible, there was the same thing about we get an idea, we see the world in a particular way, and we think it will never change. That's the way it is, because that's the way it is in our mind. So those are some of my major sources. I have modern uh, folks that I work with along those same paths. And I'm going to make a, a subject or discipline shift, but one that also has commonalities, and that's uh, your background in uh, the philosophy of science and maybe some of your interest or or. Uh, or, or learnings in, in quantum physics, which also talks about the same thing about about probability and and not being able to know position and and that that there the, you know the world is just a bunch of phenomena. How how do you bring the two together, or how do you do the two inform you in your experiences? 
Well, in the same, I went to school at UC Berkeley and I was there. You can probably see my gray hair. I was there during the free speech movement, the war in Vietnam. And I was studying with a man named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the structure of the scientific revolution about paradigms. He was only there two years as a visiting professor. But uh, I, I sat in, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to get credit. So I said, I don't care. I just let, let me audit. So for two years there and as a rat scholar, I listened to Kuhn talk about paradigms. It literally fundamentally changed my life. And I'll say more about that in a second. But simultaneously, I was taking, I become totally attracted to philosophy and philosophy, particularly of uh, how it is that we uh, come to know, come to be a being, an ontology kind of study. And in there, uh, I was learning about Socrates and Pythagoras and the guys in between. I had both of those going, I go from one classroom to the next. And so there was this whole, uh, and the course Kuhn was teaching was not physics. It was philosophy of science, right? And the history of philosophy of science. I became, I would call it knocked over completely backwards from the cat uh, the uh religious school i had been in which was a southern baptist school where i was never allowed to disagree with anything and the few times i did i got thrown out of class once i got an app because i couldn't stand not to question that process of uh being there with kuhn and with the socrates and uh in my mind at least in pythagoras poured me into the philosophy of science. And one of the things that has come from it is an understanding of a, um, a, a saying, I guess you'd call it, that Einstein said over and over again, and Einstein, you, we all know he, you know, he wasn't the founder of the quantum thinking, but certainly he was one of the people that directed and his students did where it went. But he had a wonderful quote or saying, which was, don't use the same mind that got us into the mess or the problem to try and design our way out. And I'm saying it more broadly because he said it 27 times in the places I could write. I wanted to know what that meant compared to what Thomas Kuhn meant about we're in a paradigm. And Kuhn never gave us a way to uh, define what a paradigm was. Even if you ask him over a beer, he'd say, well, you look at where people disagree and you look at where the clusters come together and they coalesce around something and they exclude everybody else. That, that was the furthest he was ever able to answer how you know where a paradigm is getting formed and when it changes because a new group forms and people trot over to the new group and that's where you are. So I spent my life uh, finding a way to have people feel what I felt in that classroom, in those two classrooms. And I have defined, uh, defined in quite the right word, I have delineated uh, something that I got from my grandfather, right? So now we got him back in here because he taught me something uh, about an idea called regeneration, which he said in Mohawk translated more like we would use the word reveal. Like it wasn't about go impose your thinking on someone or even offer your thinking. It was about re and 
try and change them. He said, I see in, in his, my grandmother uh, and my grandfather was shorty and my grandmother was Valentine. So he'd say, you know, Valentine and those good do-gooders at her church do more harm uh, to trying to help people. They should just leave them alone. And his whole way of trying to describe that was that, we are imposing our ideas on others, and we don't have a right to do that. And then he'd say, what you really want to do is reveal, and this is really your question, I think it's your opening, to be to reveal who people are at the heart of them, at the depth of them, at the core of them, and at the essence of them. And so to reveal something became my way of thinking about what the highest order paradigm was. And from there, I was able to see four, four paradigms we have at work in the world. I could see the history of my, I just posted on my Vimeo channel, uh, the keynote I did for sustainable brands on the history of regeneration, which is suddenly a popular term. I've been using it for 45, 50 years. N nobody would let me put it on the cover of a book. My publisher said, nobody knows what that means. Nobody wants that word. And now it's so co-opted and banalized and greenwashed, you know. So that's how I brought together, I added another thread, I brought together philosophy of science or philosophy and quantum science. Now, I, I haven't answered one really important question here. Uh, what Einstein meant by don't use the old mind, I would say the old paradigm. He did answer it. Uh, Einstein answered what he meant by that in... Uh, Shoot, I'm not going to remember what source I have that. Well, I got to go find that. But anyway, the what he said is pretty easy to understand. He said most of us use a billiard game model of trying to understand the world. He said, just think about it. And you can almost see him with his you know, crazy hair standing up there because he, he was a pretty good storyteller. And say, if you have an idea about where you think people should go, what we should do, you're paying a billiard game that has the pockets predefined. You want people in this pocket, this pocket, this pocket, and then you've got on your, your billiard table the balls which represent the people you're trying to move and you think you're the cue stick and your job is to get up there right shoot the ball into the pocket you want them to go in he said we do physics that way we try and take care of the planet that way we take care of other people that way and what we're doing in that process is uh directing people based on our attachments. And he didn't use the word attachment. I remember it was what he wanted us to do was use the idea of living systems. He said in living systems, that the people you have on your table decide what the pockets are. They decide where and how they want to be moved. They are their own cue stick. And if you have a job in there, it is this. You build their capability to define better pockets, to look at themselves and how to move themselves, including how to be the right kind of overseeing cue stick for themselves. That is the new way of working. It is overcoming the billiard ball game that Newton, and he cited Newton as a problem, uh, and a bit around Copernicus and other things we got a little stuck in. Uh, and he wanted us to 
all the problems we created were done with the billiard ball. He wanted us to get over here in the the new the, the uh, quantum view, where we're building capacity of others to express what they're seeking to achieve, and our only work is to support them being successful at that. What's interesting is that usually these conversations start with school, classroom, what we do, and then they branch out into these different areas. This is a case where it's the opposite. All these ideas of attachment, living system, uh, the idea of, of getting rid of the, the cue ball and, and, and cause and effect, of being able to direct, being guides, never once was the word school, never once was the word classroom brought up. And yet, we can see how it fits in completely if we have that mental picture. If we shift towards school in the classroom and we bring up specifically this idea of we can't, you know, the old ways got us here, they're probably not the solution to get us out of here, which is, you know, climate disruption, socioeconomic injustice, all these problems that we face, the meta crises, maybe we could shift towards that and your views of schools and, and, and what needs to happen for, to get us out of some of these problems, given everything that you've mentioned so far. So I have a billiard ball answer to that. I know exactly where schools should go. Let me try not to do it that way. Uh, I run a program for educators and I teach in universities. I help them get let go of the idea of curriculum, uh, you know, faculty. I mean, all those terms, which are billiard ball designated. Faculty is the cue stick, right, to move it all. When I help people build a school, whether it's for children uh, or for adults, because we do it inside of companies, it's all based on a few principles. Uh, the first of those is everything is learned inside of a living value adding process. Nothing is learned in a fragmented classroom where sit and there and have knowledge transferred to them. So you know the kind of cases where we have a garden uh, with kids and we help them learn. We probably still put them in the classroom a lot, but we have part of the day and we hope they learn about nature. When we're doing gardens, we do them as a small business that is supporting the local community or a variety of restaurants or a place that fills the homeless. And the kids, and I have kids as young as four years old being involved in this, um, they are creating produce and also in a few places, most of them are just um, plant-based, but a few are based on permaculture and biodynamics where the kids are growing specific food to support specific uh, restaurants or places people are fed. They learn all their math in that because they have they learn all about how the building uh, for, they have to, if they're going to build chickens, they got to build coops and uh, re retaining uh, walls or some. They're often close to creeks and things. That process teaches them uh, by the time they're 10 years old, how to run a business. And I mean, a business that's in service. It's really make, and I call it a value adding process because it's literally adding value. Teachers don't exist in that process. The What exists are uh, conversations, dialogues. They have meetings and you give them the capacity to do these framework thinking I'm talking about. So you teach them about how to move from two forces where everything conflicts to three forces where there's always a larger whole that all of the conflicting, seemingly conflicting forces exist. And if they can think from there, they can solve problems, create uh, offerings that th they wouldn't have even thought of any other way. 
There's no external evaluation, no external performance review, no external uh, uh, incentives, rewards, punishment. All of it is a group. And my grandson, who's 22 this weekend, uh, went through one. And I'll give you a brief story about how they even learned about justice in the process. There is a council that's made up of all stakeholders, from young kids to older kids to staff uh, to people who serve as resources. Uh, There was uh, a council meeting that my grandson had to attend because he and a couple other kids had been out on the sidewalk uh, and a a young black man had walked by and the, one of the other two kids had made a comment he knew was racist. And these kids weren't deeply racist. They, you know, they pick up stuff. They were playing with stuff. I think he was 10 years old when this happened. No, he's a little older, 12. Uh, And he knew it in his head and he thought I would never say that, but he didn't say anything and try and lift up what had happened, but he got reported for not having done so because everyone, one of the second principles was everyone's a steward of everyone else's growth and development, not their punishment, not their judgment, but their growth and development. And when you go to the council here, you don't go to be punished. You go to tell your story about what you think happened, what you learned out of it. And then you decide what you want to do to remind yourself. He decided that, and he shared that he knew at the time he should have done something different. He was really glad he was standing here today because it didn't let him let himself off the hook because no one knew what was in his mind. He committed himself to a year reading books that told the story of what it was like to be a young black man. He wrote papers on them. He shared them. He and I, I worked with him as a writer helping him learn to actually create a book. And he wrote a book about pebbles, a black hawk who was a raven. Uh, And that whole process uh, led him for years writing and thinking in a deep way that if you had a teacher and you had rules that said you don't ever use racist language, which is what we used to do, we try and kill it, knock it dead, let them know it was wrong. We don't let them do the discovery. So for me, I'm trying to give you a broad picture of it's all a value adding process that it happens inside. There's nothing external to the child except principles and frameworks and infrastructure in which all of that can happen. My definition of regeneration, which is uh, evolved capacity I'll tell you what that means in a moment for essence expression through systems actualization. It's just those six words evolve capacity for essence expression through systems actualization. So evolve capacity is Einstein's lovely story about you don't know the billiard ball, uh, who, who you want to put in there or what pocket. And you don't think it's your job to do it to them. You can see your job is to help them get better at picking their own pockets, their own being that they want to be in, and their own self-managing acoustic capacity. That is directed toward them expressing their own essence. Remember I said the inverse of reductionism is uh, overcoming fragmentation, genericizing, and categories. But the opposite of that categorization is essence. And so 
if we can each learn what our own essence is or the draft version of it, because we may never know, learning to express that more than other people's ideas about what we should be is the thing they experience. And they do that in a way that's very important. It's not uh, for self-actualizing, it's for system actualizing. They learn to express their essence, evolve their capacity to do that by working on serving a system through evaluating process. No, I, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And and one of the things that uh, we've been talking a lot about is assessment and, and how ridiculous it is to uh, have this uh, uh, construct that usually is brought over year after year and try to fit kids into um, uh, you know worlds in which they have to demonstrate what they know about something, regardless of whether they care, regardless of whether there's meaning. And, and even worse, going back to quantum physics, it goes against the you know Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And one of the things that struck me in your story is is in my own experience with my child and and the importance of relationships. Uh, when we go traveling around, um, you know, I could point to him about architecture and about this fountain and all that, but he doesn't care. Um, and that's okay, right? That's okay. You, you can try and he doesn't care. That's okay. But I don't need to put him through a test about what he saw, what he brings up, shows me his interest and what he's learned. And it's in the relationship that we could figure out learning, not just in some kind of assessment where we have to put a, a, a numerical score. And so I've been thinking about what's going on with the kids that you mentioned, and not just the kids, the community learning together. You know, once you have those close relationships. Well, and it's, it is a relationship, but it's also the application, watching what the, so let me give you one other story about what I did with my kids. Um, I started when they were six years old, offering them because kids are really wanting to be a part of the family at six. That's the first age, they, the brain development, other stuff. And so I said, what would you like to be in charge of helping work in the household? And I, at six, gave them some suggestions. I said, you can go outside this. Uh, uh, that you want to have us work with you on doing. And so, you know, my daughter picked cleaning a room because it was always a mess. Uh, I forgot what my son picked at this age, but they spent a lot. They were not responsible for doing it. They were responsible for leading it and getting it done. When they were nine, I said, I would like for you to pick a system in the house, which is like feeding us or managing our finances. And everybody said at nine, I said, if from six to nine, they've been managing and learning. And we always had Sunday evening reflection meetings, not evaluation, reflection and upgrade meetings. Uh, my son said he wanted to feed us and my daughter wanted to manage our finances. My daughter is, still runs my company and manages the finance for myself and everyone. She can think about how money works, how finance works, how uh, investment works in her head. My son became a phenomenal cook. We nearly starved to get death at the beginning, but they chose what they wanted to contribute to the system first, really important percept. Secondly, and I tell I tell this whole story in more depth in the regenerative life, the same story about my that the book about my grandfather. Uh, but on Sunday night we would sit and I would say, well, how did the plan? Because they always had a plan for the week um, that had some idea where, where they're going, what they were going to do, how they were going to do it. How did it go? And it was sometimes a huge mix went really well no i had a mess didn't get stuff done and then the question becomes well 
How would you do it next time? What would you like to do next time? Where you, what, what do you think? I mean, I don't even remember all the questions, but over dinner on Sunday night for a couple of hours, each kid, and we also had other kids come live with us for an extended period of time, and they selected something we were part of it. That process of we were all in community was infrastructure. You have to, I've had people try and copy these stories about kids. You can't do it unless you have a developmental infrastructure in there where you're growing them. I was also teaching frameworks, reflection, uh, never like a classroom, but in the way we, I would lay up, so well, how you might try this. I was a resource to them. Uh, so I think that there is the relationship that that's important but i think there is the infrastructure that has to go beyond what they're getting into what they're seeing about how it fits in the world uh but not with a heavy hand uh not with any evaluation and we go we're going back to this idea of living systems and reductionism where as opposed to honing in on maybe a certain skill or whether or not a kid has mastered or whatever they do in a certain area, it's how they exist within that living system. And then actually, you know, if, 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 there, if you guys were starving, then something was wrong, not just with, um, you know, maybe, I don't say wrong, maybe, but, but like an individual con contributor's part might have to be looked at, but also the system and that the whole thing has to be reworked rather than an individual. That's a real shift in thinking as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my grandfather taught me uh, something called seven first principles of living systems. And he, I think the first uh, three or uh, certainly the first three are how I think about reductionism. Uh, the first one is don't fragment. So you don't break up the way you're talking about. You don't break it up into this problem, this idea, this subject. Secondly, uh, you don't make anything generic. There's nothing in, in living systems that repeats itself. Each is uh, uh, unique in and of itself. So if you have one watershed, or I call them life sheds, you can't have knowledge of all watersheds, all life sheds. You can't be generic. And then third, everything has an essence. Each of your children, each of not only my children, but the children they brought home, each uh, watershed itself, each city, each community has an essence. Not learning to see that is the inverse of reductionism, where you reject, reduce it to generic, uh, same, templated, category, uh, personality, a type, all of those kind of things. Tell us a little bit maybe about um, some of the things that you're, you're, you're working on, some of the things that you're thinking, what the next steps are. Tell us about um, really what occupies your thinking lately and, and maybe what will in the future. Uh, well, we'll see. I'm getting old. I'm thinking a lot about that. I'll be 80 pretty soon. And I've been generating a new event every year. What I just did, and I know where I'll go next about it, is I just turned in my sixth book to my publisher um, a week ago, a week ago, Monday, actually. And uh, that 
is the story of what you and I are talking about right now. It's called indirect work. And it's a regenerative theory of change. How, how, what, how change, learning, discovery, unfolding, how that really happens from a quantum view, not from a uh, billiard ball view. Uh, once I do a book, I usually generate a lot of things people can do for free around it. Some they can pay for and be in community. And I'll, I'll build more of those kind of things. I am uh, also working on three other books at the same time, and I have three podcasts, right? So I'm always writing scripts uh, just so I have something to do in my spare time. I am generating a new YouTube channel uh, that we're calling Regenerative Life Hacks. But it's about hacking, not for simplifying and ease, but for meaning and uh, significance. How do you bring more on an everyday uh, way of living, bring more meaning into your engagements and your relationships? And how do you bring more significance so you feel like what you're doing really matters? Your opening of three questions, how you make a difference. And it's going to be done the same way I did the Regenerative Life book, uh, which was book number five. I just submitted six. So five was an action learning and uh, research project where I had over 150 people come and study with me online. And this before we had to, but they were around the world about how it is you uh, engage in a way that you live from a regenerative set of principles from a living system. They would go out and try it in specific places, uh, parenting, uh, design work, uh, writing, uh, running a TV show. I had quite famous people who were are doing this and vice presidents at Google. I mean, I had amazing people who would study and then go out and apply it. Then they would come back and we would talk about it. I'd give them the next set of things to play with. They go out, apply it, come back. And it was back and forth over about six months. Then they submitted a story about how when they changed to working with the seven first principles and learning to manage their mind so they didn't have uh, what I called energy drains, or maybe we call them, we may have called them something else in the book. Uh, if they weren't caught up in those, how did it change how effortlessly they could bring meaning and significance? And how could other people learn from that? I wrote all, put all the stories into the book and we ended up with nine major roles that we believe uh, form the basis of a working society that when people can have that way of seeing the world, it can change everything around you. You don't even have to be the owner of a company. Uh, you, you don't have to even be a parent to be parenting. For the, the TV show, YouTube channel, we're going to have more people come in the back door funnel. They go do from the recordings now. And if any of your listeners are interesting, uh, interested, they can email me and we can. Uh, well, actually, you don't have to anymore. On Carol Sanford dot com under books i think it is you can see the regenerative life project and you can apply to be in it and you can go through the whole process and you can tell your story and me and my little team of people who are looking at was well, so like some people where monthly we have four stories that are told four weeks uh, of the month uh, about how you can 
transform your own life and everyone around you in a way that doesn't have to be a hero, doesn't have to build a whole different company or become rich so you can give it away. You can do it in your everyday life. So that's the real next project. I'll probably be out there for another five years and who knows, maybe I'll be worn out by then. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and the way you've you've brought so many different things together uh, without necessarily um, focusing on one, but just showing how everything works in, in, the, in, in the system in itself. So, so, so thank you so much. You're welcome, Benjamin. Thanks for asking me. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. As mentioned, it's the first of hopefully a long series of partnerships with Intrepid Ed. Um, and I would like to thank uh, the good folks at Intrepid Ed for all their articles, thought-provoking. Uh, in the meantime, check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. There's some blogs there, ways to connect, uh, videos. Um, really, it's a platform to start conversations. So, so I'm always happy when, when people come aboard. Um, our next guest will be Jane Bryant, former CEO of the Ken Robinson Foundation uh, in arts work. Uh, and she will have um, a conversation about how arts can be centralized in education, what that might look like, what the benefits are. Uh, and certainly this will take us um, in a direction that always connects to regeneration. In the meantime, www.coconut-thinking.design, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye-bye.